Thank you for downloading this recording of The Illusionists, a panel discussion produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia for the Vernissage Weekend of the 2016 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. Join interlocutor Lisa Havila, artists Lisa Rowett, Abdulrahman Abdallah, Glenn Barkley and Robin Stacey as they share in this discussion around the revival and role of illusionism in contemporary Australian art. I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are on Aboriginal land today, the land of the Ghana people, and I'd like to thank Elders past and present for allowing us to be here today. My name is Lisa Havla, I'm the director of CarriageWorks, and I'm very happy to be hosting this very esteemed group of artists for a conversation about illusionism. In the 2016 Adelaide Biennale, The Magic Object, Lisa Slade has brought together an extraordinary group of artists to create a world of illusion, mystery, and enchantment. Drawing inspiration from the Wonder Karma, Slade has immaculately created an exhibition whereby the viewer through a state of encounter makes meaning where every object is magic through its innate materiality, which has been imbued by the maker with an undeniable energy, an energy that sometimes tricks us and transports us. Today we are going to discuss the revival and role of illusionism in Australian art. The term illusionism is used to describe a work that creates an illusion of reality, where the artist tricks us into thinking what we are seeing is not actually what is, what it is. For example, in Magic Object, we encounter Abdul Rahman Abdullah's work, Maranto. In this work, we are tricked into thinking that the artist is sitting in his canoe in front of us. For a moment, we are with Abdul, <coughs> sharing the space with him in a moment of non-reality, a moment of magic. In the same way, when we walk into one of Robin Stacey's magical camera obscuras, it is for a moment like the world has been sucked inside and become a theatre unto itself. And we, the viewer, arrive instantly on the stage. Illusionism exists not only in the history and contemporary practice of art making. It also exists in philosophy, where illusionism is the position that free will does not exist and is merely an illusion, a claim made by the determinists who range from Hobbes to Einstein. In theatre, the illusionistic tradition was created during the Renaissance and was centred on the grandiose spectacle which saw the introduction of many things we take for granted in performance today, including the proscenium arch, the border and the raked stage, which created new illusions of perspective. I would like to think that these four artists are motivated to illusion us or trick us because they want us to step, they want us to step outside of our everyday lives, to look up from our phones, to be present, to have an unmediated moment with their work, with them. But I'm sure they have multiple motivations for this, which I'm very much looking forward to hearing today. So to talk about illusionism and the making of magic today, we are very fortunate to be joined by Abdul Rahman Abdullah. <laughs> Welcome, Abdul. Hi there. <laughs> Glenn Barkley, Lisa Rowett, and Robin Stacey. Please make them welcome. And 
And I'm just going to introduce each of these very fine artists to you. Abdul Rahman Abdul Abdullah is a Western Australian artist whose practice explores the ways that memory can inhabit and emerge from familial space. Working primarily in sculpture, Abdullah draws on his Muslim Australian experience, articulating formative experience of, experiences of individual identity within the broader scope of family. Expanding on the narrative, capacity of animal archetypes, crafted objects, and the human presence, his work creates a physical dialogue between the natural world and the agency of culture. Glenn Barclay is an artist, curator, and writer from Sydney. He is co-founder and co-director of the Curators Department and of Killinet, an experimental ceramic studio located in the Sydney suburb of Glebe. In his work for Magic Object, Barclay plays homage to the 17th century Danish physician and collector Ole Worm, whose Wanderkama, named Museum of the Worm, represented a level of hoarding almost equaled by Barclay himself. For over two decades, Lisa Rowett has investigated the complex interface between humans and our simian relatives, drawing inspiration from residencies at major international zoos, field studies of apes living in the forests of Borneo, and most recently through her own heart surgery. Lisa's multidisciplinary approach to her work has challenged fundamental scientific and behavioral theories relating to human evolution, creationism, language, communication, science, and art. And last but not least, Robin Stacey, over the last three decades, has breathed new life into the historical collections of Australian museums and brought our gaze to contemporary society. Stacey's work broadens our personal perspectives by allowing us to imagine other people's private worlds. For Magic Object, Stacey has selected sites across Adelaide, including Carrick Hill, the Samri Building, the Cedars and Parliament House, Port Adelaide, and has converted each of them into a temporary and spectacular camera obscura. Now, we consider this a conversation, so if you have questions from the audience at any time, please feel free to ask them. And also, I'd like to let you know that we um, are capturing this for podcast, so if you don't want to be recorded, um, don't ask a question in this, in this setting. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like to... Um, I'm going to start with um, Abdul. I'm going to start by asking um, each of the artists to tell us about the work that you've created for Magic Object and the role that you think illusionism plays within it. Thank you, Abdul. Uh, hi there, everyone. I'm Abdul Rahman Abdullah. Um, the work that I created uh, is basically a self-portrait, um, carving a traditional Malay, or paddling a Malay canoe, dugout canoe, um, with a rooster. And it's down there, it's installed in front of Danny Mellors. Um, I guess, in, in a nutshell, the work was sort of uh, my response to a research trip that I undertook um, where me and my father went to South Sulawesi and I was um, looking into my family history and sort of connecting family trees from first Australia and Malaysia and then back to South Sulawesi where sort of my ancestors left up to 300 years ago. Um, I guess in terms of illusionism, it's not something I necessarily apply to my work, but I can see how it is applied to my work and it does fit into that. Um, in, I guess in sort of formal terms, I like to put sculptural objects into a space in a way that takes, takes the space or like, you know, so to allow the work to occupy the space to the walls. 
I don't know you can see that in a very selfish way, but I want to I take in all the space around an object. Um, and in this particular work, I wanted to, you know, make that floor of the, or that gallery floor become the surface of water and embed the canoe into that, which, I mean, it's not a difficult thing to do, but um, you can't really see it in that image, but the paddle that I'm holding actually sort of buries it into the floor as well. Um, Usually, I mean, this is the sort of first time I've wanted to turn the floor into a body of water. Normally, I'd turn the floor into the floor and sort of let the work sit in the space in, in real terms, one-to-one, -one, I guess. Um, but I suppose it's put, it puts the audience in, in a slightly odd position, you know, once saying, when they do encounter, I want to put people in sort of in the presence of an object which can occupy the same space as them. In this sense, people are um, walking on water when they approach the work. Yeah. Um. It's beautiful work. <laughs> Lisa, would you like to talk a little bit about your work, Heartbeat? Um, Heartbeat is a, is a really new work, so it'll be, it'll be interesting and challenging for me to talk about it, you know, because it's a fresh perspective also mm. for me, seeing it installed and in space and the two elements working together. But basically, it's um, a version of my heart, but it's, it's actually through science, a science animation, a, a very amazing science animator called Drew Berry from the Walter and Eliza Institute has placed together my heart, which is an MRI, MRI footage of my heart with echocardiogram footage of a gorilla's heart, um, which comes from Cardiff University with a science team that I worked with virtually through, through the beautiful world of the internet. And they sent over this footage of, of, the, of the heart and this animator animated it. Um, I've used a technology called Musion, which is basically a hologram version of technology. It creates a three-dimensional um, moving image in space. So it's working from the principles of black almost camera obscura and the old-fashioned old school of, of um, Pepper's Ghost, you know, from the 1800s, where a ghost would appear on stage. But it's um, a much higher-tech version of that. Uh, the reason I use that technology is not for the wow factor of the technology, which of course there is that wow factor because people when they walk in get seduced, I suppose, by this thing that they're not sure what they're seeing. But it's also, um, you know, it's part of my ongoing practice and my ongoing practice is about uh, the relationship of humans with apes and uh, the communication of humans with apes and, and how we communicate as well. So. I've worked a lot with language specialists who teach chimpanzees to talk with sign language and I've worked with sort of apes in, in the wild and um, I'm very interested in, in, in language and, and what language means and, and this work has a lot to do with that as well because there's a video version that goes with it which is an ongoing work that I'm doing with a Chinese artist, Shen Xiaomin. And that work is about primal language and about primal body language and communication and um, yeah. And we've used hypnosis for, in that process to get a group of volunteers to come back to their primal self, I suppose. Yeah, it's an incredible, very confronting piece of work. But yeah. I think you must also feel very confronted seeing your own heart to that scale. And I think, how do you, how do you feel that um, your work has shifted through, um, I suppose, in response to your own heart surgery and your own sort of new relationship with mortality? Um, it is confronting to see that work. The other day I had a little bit of a sort of... It's also my heartbeat that's going yeah. on. So um, I can... My heartbeat's quite plastic now because of the surgery. I've got a, a plastic aorta, so the, the whole sound is quite different. So I listen to it and sort of 
you know, I do have flashbacks of some of the surgery and some post problems that I had. And, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it helped me get through the surgery and it also helped me to focus on, on using that incredible experience as part of my, of my work. And I'd already started working with this science team from Cardiff University because they're doing the single primal heart, primate heart research into particularly gorilla heart because they're very similar to the human heart. So I'm very interested in the science of science research side of my practice. Um, mm. I always wanted to be a primatologist or a zoologist. And so being failed in that aspect, I can still keep relating to these people and using them in my practice and, and confronting all those things that I wanted to, um, to learn about through my art. And, you know, I see it, it's great at the Experimental Art Foundation because it is an experiment, really, that whole work. And, you know, it's, it was an experiment for them. That, you know, it was great working with all those scientists too for that because they, they hadn't worked with an artist on that level as well. And mm. Sort of everyone was learning things, basically. Mm. That's an extraordinary work. Thank you. Glenn, would you like to talk a little bit about your illusionism? Uh, I'm not, yeah, I've sort of been thinking about the theme and how it relates to illusion. My work relates to illusionism. I suppose it has a level of theatricality about it. So it's right down in the back corner on the ground floor here at the art gallery. And it's a series of, it, it's a room that is a homage to uh, Ollie Worm's Wunderkammer, which was established in the 17th century. And the Wunderkammer is something I've sort of been interested in and sort of looked at for a long time. And it became a sort of hook around which to build the space because although I'm a, an artist and I'm also a curator, I actually really want to be a gardener. And when I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I finished, I had, yeah, yeah. I, had, I had a really good job and I left and then I went to horticultural college and um, I studied horticulture and I think in a sense gardens are almost the ultimate sort of wunderkamas because everything in the garden has been nearly everything comes from a different place unless you've got one of these very strict sort of quite boring gardens where people say, I can only plant the species that come from here that are endemic to this place. That's quite dull. I find that a bit dull. So the garden that I do work in has got plants from all over the world. And there's just this play on Ollie Worm's name, which is Worm. And if you read or if you start to do gardening about the most important thing you can do but the least sexy is soil improvement. Now there's books and books about this and it, it's not like looking at flowers, it's actually about like enriching the soil, changing the soil structure, doing all those things. Um, and worms are very interesting because they sort of eat the materials in the soil and they sort of shit it out and I think sometimes that's what being an artist is like. Um, <laughs> The, the internet. Yeah. <laughs> the internet is like this sort of compost heap, and um, I used to have a job as a curator, so I'm sort of looking at. I was looking at art all the time, and I sort of think that's something that curators can be good at is looking, or they should be, um, and finding all these ideas and sort of processing them through, and the, and and sort of shitting them out as well. And I use quite often a tool in the studio called an extruder, which is um, you sort of put clay in it, you pull the handle, and it sort of poops out this big cable. Um, and it's a really fast way of making work. Um, and so 
the space in a way is sort of like a clearinghouse of ideas. There's a whole lot of things floating around in there. People do come in and they look at my work and they say, oh, it looks like coral or it looks like knitting. Well, it sort of has nothing to do with those things. Um, I'm pleased that people see that, but a lot of it, most of the time it's about gardening and it's also about my fear of being looked at as being lazy. So I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be lazy, so I put all those holes in things because it's a way of saying, hey, look, I'm not lazy, I went blind. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that may not, yeah. <laughs> Um, Robin, your amazing camera obscuras um, in a different way are a performative space. How, how did you go through the process of selecting those spaces in Adelaide and creating them? Um, well, I made three trips to Adelaide and as you mentioned in the introduction, I've always been interested in uh, the history and so there a lot of them are well known Adelaide buildings like the Institute's one of the oldest buildings in Adelaide. Hans Heysen, um, it's an iconic figure in South Australia, so Hans Heysen Studio, um, and the house, uh, when you do the tour of the house, you know, you always get the story about Nellie Melba coming and performing in the lounge room, and um, it just has a very rich history, uh, and so I was, they kind of presented themselves, it's like, well, these are obvious choices, and then things like the Samri building, which is kind of where Adelaide's going, and it's so such a fantastic architectural statement, and so modern and contemporary. Um, so they really, when Lisa asked me to do it, and I had a number of other commitments, and I went, oh, maybe I could do one. Yeah. And then we that we did eight and they all worked. Yeah. And it was like, oh well, it's just like they, they kind of, it, it, the camera obscura kind of reveals itself to you and then it's just about being in the room and mm. observing as Glenn was talking about and then um, waiting because it's totally a weather dependent thing. It's the relation of the sun in, to the room. So some rooms only last, the shortest room's 20 minutes Mm -hmm. Some rooms last several hours. A room's either a morning room or an afternoon room. And uh, just should, so if people haven't seen one, even though we say camera obscura, it's actually chimera and it's Latin and it means room and obscura means dark. Mm -hmm. So it's literally a dark room with a hole in it. So it's incredibly simple, that's what I love about it. Mm -hmm. And then from outside, whatever is outside is projected through the hole and covers the wall, the floor, the ceiling of the room. And because light travels in a straight line, the buildings hang from the roof and the sky appears on the floor or the bed or the table in the room. So when you're talking about like illusionism and reality, photographies totally seem to be real. Like people go, oh, I saw the picture, it must mm. be real. Whereas a camera obscura in a way, it's like being in a camera without the mirror that flips it upside down. So when you look through the viewfinder, it's sort of right way round. But it is quite a completely different thing. Mm. And they date from 300 BC, are the earliest. So they've been around for forever. So for forever, we've known how to capture an image. 
and photography is really about the invention of chemistry that allows you to fix an image onto glass or metal or paper and make it transportable. Mm. But image making has been around, you know, like I said, since 300 BC. Mm. And how have you seen um, audiences respond to being within the work? Um, people love being in the room because the room is magical because you go into the room and you have to wait for your pupils to dilate. And there was an optometrist in there yesterday and he went, actually, Robin, it's not just the pupils dilating, it's the retinal adjustment of the <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh, great, thanks. <laughs> so, and he went, yes, that's really how it works. And so uh, you have to sit. It's not like, you know, when you go to a blockbuster, you go, you've moved along. And yeah. you kind of, oh, yeah, I get it. I've seen that one. You just have to wait for your pupils to dilate and everything else to happen. And then the image presents itself on, on the wall and it's upside down and it's in reverse. And there was, you know, uh, so when people experience that, then they look at the photographs and they go, oh, now I get it. Because mm. generally people look at them and they go, oh, it's Photoshop, a mm. couple of images sandwiched together, and it's like, no, no, it's one image. It's like the moment out of time. Mm. It's this visual mashup of what's outside with the room. Mm. So, and that's, and what, and that makes another, it's like it makes itself. Mm. So that, say with the Samri one, like I'm in the comfort in Riviera. Yeah. which is a pretty prosaic, yeah. utilitarian, overnight stay kind of architectural statement, and then floating like this giant zeppelin is this really futuristic, very imaginative. So it's kind of a comment on architecture and how architecture can affect us. And, but I don't make that. Mm. The camera obscura makes that. Mm. And do you feel like the organic nature of the making of the photograph changes them, changes the content? Uh, so they're not photoshopped, there isn't a technical, it's almost like an organic response. Yeah, I mean that, because if you photoshopped it, oh, it would be an incredible amount of work. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying using the computer makes it easy. Yeah. It would still be a lot of work, but you would be imposing what you thought it would be. You'd be projecting, whereas like I said, this, what I do is select the scene or the building, mm. pick the room that I want it to be in. And often there is only, like with the Samway, there's only one room in town that it mm. works like that. So, and then it is like, it is a magic thing. It just mm. happens. Mm. And that's more exciting because you get things that I wouldn't have imagined. Yeah. And that's what. And then at Carrick Hill, it's a teardrop garden. And mm. that's like a little enclosed world. So you get a world in the room. Mm. Extraordinary. Abdul, I wanted to ask you, um, in some of your recent work, such as In the Name, where you have the lamb carcasses hanging, um, which is in Sydney, I think late last year, how important is it for audiences to think that that's a real lamb carcass? Is that something that you think about? Um, yeah, well... Like I said before, I like to sort of put people in the presence of something, I guess, and I wanted to like um, sort of allow them to occupy the same space as something. And if you, to me, going for a certain degree of realism, like um, 
sort of allows you to sort of to access what people already have in their own heads and what they've already experienced. Um, yeah, so it's, it's almost like a, um, I don't know, making a, a, sh a short circuit to what they've already, what relationships have already developed. So I use a lot of animals and I use a lot of things which are very familiar, very domestic. The carcass to me was a domestic memory and something from very, you know, it was a very suburban scene. Um, and a lot of people already have that sort of familiarity. I mean, there was people who saw it as this very abject thing mm -hmm. and were kind of vaguely horrified to see, you know, a hamburger in such a primitive state, I guess. But to me, it was, um, <laughs> well, it also occupies a, it becomes a bodily thing too, because the one thing about the carcass is that it feels, it almost occupies the same space as a human being. And when it's hanging like that, I guess people can really, I mean, quite literally standing next to it and they're measuring themselves against it. Um, but it needed to have that level of realism, I guess. It couldn't be, I don't want to abstract things there in the real world. I'm not, you know, I don't see my role as an inventor of any sort. Um, and, and these things already exist, so for me to sort of just remove from one context and put it in this other completely clean, ideal, idealised environment like a gallery space, mm. um, Sort of takes away everything else around. It takes away the smell, takes away anything like that. And yeah, lets you experience the sort of side of it in a way that to me is a memory, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Can I, there's yeah. a strange thing with your work and also I think with Chris Bond's work at the Sam Stand. Yeah. Where, and this happened to me when, I, when we were installing and I was lucky enough to walk around and I first encountered your work and it was quite, you saw it and you went, wow, like you're really in the room. And then when you went up to it, you, it was quite obvious that yeah. it was made. Yeah. And then the next day, the same thing happened again. <laughs> but it's the same thing with Chris Bond's work as you look at it and you think, oh, that's a book. And then you work it out and it's like, yes, quite obviously not a book. And then you turn and then when you look back, it's like, I oh, know that's a book. It returns to its state. That's got to be a book. Suppose <laughs> Like, well, with Chris Bond's too, it's like, and mine, well, at a, sort of at a glance and as a whole, it'll sort of, it'll, you know, it'll create a scene, it'll create a scenario, but on closer inspection, it will reveal its construction and, and how it's fabricated. So it's sort of, it, I guess it's only a couple of levels, and if you give it time and um, sort of inspect it close, which objects like that really sort of invite you in, I guess. It's about this, you know, the seductive quality of something that's so illusionary. But I like that it reveals itself, and it reveals itself to be quite a, um, you know, like a tactile thing. You know, these things are made out of wood and canvas and linen, in, in Chris's case. Um, and it's, it's almost like a very old-school, clunky fabrication process. Um, but, you know, it just creates another world in that. And, yeah, that's something I love. Glenn, there's no hiding from the fact that the, the objects that you make are made from clay. How do you think um, they reveal themselves? Because they're not trying to be anything else, really, are they? They're not, but they're, they're functional. I think people, they are pots. That's the weird thing. Um, people look at my work and they say, oh, they're sculptural, they're sculptures, and they're this and they're that. And it's like, no, they're pots because they've got holes in the top and you could put things in them, and people say, oh, but there's holes in it, you know, it's not waterproof. It's like, yeah, but you could put a stick or something in it. Or, um, I love that um, Betty Woodman, who's maybe one of my favourite ceramicists, has sort of said, you know, now 
pots are really good to put your mail in. So you could sort of put your mail into them as well. So they are pots. They're not trying to be sculptures. They're not pots trying to be sculptures. They are pots. So I think in the collages that are down there, they are perhaps more illusionary than I'm trying to create imaginary pots or scenarios that might eventually be kept. They might be plans for pots. And I think the really interesting thing about ceramics and the sort of freedom of ceramics is the language of ceramics is appropriation. Like everybody throughout the whole history of making ceramics has been taking from each other quite freely. It's almost, you can't make a pot without referencing a pot that was made a thousand years ago. It's impossible. So um, that's, that frees you up. It's like the whole world becomes something that you can use in your work and the whole history of ceramics is there for you to plunder mm. but they're pop <laughs> <laughs> someone bought I, I, I never realized when I was a curator how great it was if someone bought your work that you didn't know um, if your mum bought it it's great like yeah but she feels sorry for you if, you, if your friend buys it it's great but it's usually really cheap um, and then someone you don't know buys it. And um, anyway, Val Gregg and Michael Gregg, who are amazing ceramic collectors in Sydney, bought a work of mine and I went in and like, that's quite inspiring. They're amazing, inspiring people. And Val said, oh, it's so great. I'm going to stick flowers in it. And it was like, thank God, someone's going to stick yeah, yeah, something yeah. in it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lisa, I'm really interested to know, um, moving into um, digital and screen-based work now, um, from those incredible sculptural works that you've been doing for such a long time, um, how, how do you think that sort of um, transition from representing your own heart is going to, where will you go from that, do you think? Well, I've, I've used digital processes mm. right throughout my mm. practice. so. Mm. Um, even, for example, in the big bronzes, uh, yeah. I've done big bronze hands, for example, they're hand-modelled, um, but then I've gone and got the handprint of either a chimpanzee or an orangutan that I've worked with and digitally cut those into the work. So there's always this element of, of technology that comes into the work, even though they appear very traditionally sort of made. So I choose a, a medium or a process according to what I want to say so whatever the mm. best medium is is what I'll use so you know I, I think my next work's going to be big bronzes again so it, it I, you know it's not necessarily that I'll just go on to using yeah. sort of technology to support my practice it'll it's very conceptually sort of driven what materials and mediums I use yeah yeah and up to the process of making this work can you talk us through that this one, well, I suppose it's laminated together with um, sort of big slabs of gelatong wood. It's a rainforest wood from Indonesia, Malaysia. Um, just glue it together in a very large block. Start at the top left corner, finish on the bottom right. <laughs> Pretty much. It's just, I mean, this was the first time I'd done a human figure in wood. I'd done human figures in four, you know, just you know, in clay and casting and moulding and things like that. This is the, it's, it's quite a different process. You know, that reductive way of carving. I see it as an extension of drawing. It's kind of like drawing in the negative where you just erase yeah. the bits in between with a very stubborn pencil. Um, but, yeah, it's just a big block, and I was, I was the reference. So, I mean, that was important to me. I was trying to put myself into a certain story, and the first time I did a figure, it had to be me, in a sense. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, it just starts off as a big block and then you carve it into a Lego man and then you just, um, just keep trimming away and try not to cut an ear off. <laughs> um, I do have a video of the, sort of the process that's you know, said somewhere around. Um, yeah, and it was just in three different bits. Um, the only part of it which w isn't wood is the, the, the rooster's legs, which are cast in bronze. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's for practical reasons as well, because they're skinny little things. Um, and do you find it confronting seeing yourself? Well, it's not me until the very end. So it's not, you know, sort of, it was just a big block of wood, <laughs> and the face was the very last thing to go into it. And it's never really yeah. looking at yourself as such. Yeah. Um, it did, does like come into the studio every day and then there's a person sort of sitting on my table. It does, it did get me every time and I share a studio with my partner and, I, and yeah. she would freak out every time she stepped in as well. It's just that, again, it's the familiarity of that shape, you know, you see that head and ears and it's like there's a, a silhouette of a person in the room. Yeah. yeah. The photos of me making it looked strange, but because it's yeah. just me poking myself in the eye with a paintbrush. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Glenn, where do you think um, that your pots don't um, look like you, but how do you think they um, <laughs> represent you? <laughs> I sort of think they do. There's a weird thing with this show. Is someone said everyone in the show sort of looked like their work. Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa Slade said it to me, and then she said, I look like a hippie gardener. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I think if anyone knows me, maybe there's something in there about me. Um, and there's a lot of coded things within the pots as well. So there's a lot of references to different people. There's lots of references to popular songs in the works, because... Like I said, I'm sort of interested in the history of ceramics and I, one, one period that I really love is sort of medieval English slipware and sort of later slipware and which has been made, is still made today in England. And quite often they use sort of popular poetry or popular song from sort of the 16th or 17th century. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, how do you find, like, what are the parallels today? Because poetry, it's not a dying art form, but it's quite unpopular. Um, which is a shame because there's great poets out there. Um, and it's through popular songs. So I started to just track sort of popular songs where they were singers or mu musicians who had referenced the botanical world in some, in some way. So there's a pot down there called Like a Cactus Tree, which comes out of Joni Mitchell. But then I sort of got bored, so I started listening to Metallica. So I made this Metallica pot sad but true because I think... Metallica, when you sort of isolate their lyrics, is they're so sort of earnest and over the top. And when you start to listen to popular songs, it's sort of like garbage sometimes, but um, lyrically, sort of top 40 hits, when you actually isolate the words, they're incredibly powerful. So if you start to put them on pop, it's like, yeah, I believe it. Um, whereas Metallica, yeah, that's, they, I, I am really into that. It's like Philip Glass. And... Um, if anyone knows, I have a love of music, so I listen to so many things in the studio, and so that starts to come out as well. So maybe in those things. <laughs> can I, can I just, um, yeah. it's, it's sort of not relevant in a lot of ways, but I just love, you know, you're saying you are what you look like, and poetry. I, uh, the, the, in the, the video work, in, in my work, 
Um, there's, I'm working with this Chinese artist, Shen Min, and his studio, and it's an on, that will be in an ongoing project that I'm doing in April, where we're working with a Chinese poet, and he also went, so the, the work's called We Are Animal, We Are Porcelain, <laughs> and he, he's a very large man, this poet from, from Shanghai, like just three times my size, um, and he, under hypnosis he wrote, wrote some poetry, and he actually became a piece, he thought he was a piece of porcelain on a shelf in the Ming Dynasty. <laughs> and it was just amazing that even through that process, he actually felt, became this, you know, this piece of porcelain. And so, yeah, sorry, I just, it just made me think. Shen Xiaomin is such a great artist and has a history of practicing yeah. in Australia. How did, you, how did that collaboration start? Um, I, I saw a, a, spe- a talk of his, mm-hmm. and um, I just thought that. I've never really heard another artist talk where I felt so connected with my own practice, even though our work doesn't really look similar. We've both got an interest in the relationship of the human with the animal and, and, and also a strong sense of animal rights sort of interest. And we spoke afterwards and then just sort of said, why don't we do a collaboration together? And so it's been three years and we got a very large Australia Council grant to continue that project. And, so I go over every sort of six months and, you know, it's, it's amazing because it's through translators and so mm. with, there's all these layers of sort of people involved and layers of communication and, and, and it's very organic. But w- when we first started the project, we had a very specific work with a science team that we were going to do and the government changed and now we've had to rechange what we're doing because there's censorship issues and a lot of the artists have got more nervous about what they're producing and... But it's been really, really fantastic, and it's going to be a really, really interesting work when it's finished, uh, mm. which will be this year. Mm. But yeah, he's great, and you know, he's an amazing guy. Mm. But I have to say, Chinese artists, I go to his studio and we do the work, and we did this video work there, and they have palaces as studios. <laughs> and many so, assistants. <laughs> I know, and all, all the people who were the volunteers in that, who are so incredible and generous, because... We had this stage hypnotist come out from America and, you know, it's quite a frightening process to be hypnotised and there's a lot of trust involved and we didn't let the, the volunteers know what we were going to do and they trusted us, and, but they were all his staff, so he has 20, <laughs> he has a cook, that's the main character, and in the, in the, he has, you know, people painting his works and, you know, it's quite, it's quite as an Australian artist who has a shed out the back of my house, you know, it's, um, it's quite an experience to sort of work with someone like that who's working in that capacity. Yeah, yeah. it's resourcing on a completely different scale. Completely different. <laughs> and Robert, I thought I would ask you, where, where um, in your cam- camera obscura works do you sit as the artist in the work? Um, well, it's interesting because I came to the camera obscura after doing really elaborate still lives, which mm. were based on... In, uh, significant historic collections like here in Australia and in the Netherlands. And that's all about control. So I, you set it all up and they're based on the Dutch still life. So they're very elaborate and you realise it's a great exercise in understanding composition. You move one thing and it cascades down the hole. You can't just go, oh, I'll put that there because it impacts. You control the lighting, you control everything you become really perfectionist about mm. it and kind of obsessed about the control. And then to go into the camera obscura, it's like, oh, I have to give it all up because if it's overcast, it doesn't work. If it rains, it doesn't work. If the sun's not 
in the right position to mm. the building, if the building's on a different angle. So it just kind of opened up everything um, where you take a back seat, like I said, and you become more the observer. So I'm in the room, and you spend, a, and it's a, you're in a dark room, and you spend an awfully long time in a dark room, like day mm. after day, kind of waiting for the weather to capture the moment. So it does, it's kind of completely changed how I think about making work and mm. the relationship to the natural world. Even though I was making like big floral still lives, <clears throat> but it was in a studio. So, mm. you know, you get up at six in the morning, you pick all the flowers, you take them to the studio in giant buckets. But I'm now more in the world than I was when mm. I, so that's kind of been interesting. Um, yeah, it's just a completely, so I've got more, um, I guess, where you go, well, things do present themselves and I just have to kind of go with it rather than I need to control it. And, mm. and I know what will be at the end. I don't know what the end will be, whereas mm. when I made the still life in my head, I mean, when I did the cedars... So it's more process. Yeah, it is. Yeah, a different type of process. Yeah, like, yeah. So the cedars, because it's Hans Heiser's studio, I said to Lisa, I want a white canvas. I knew they had the easel there. So it's Hans Heiser's easel. And then the gum trees come in and on over the canvas, over the wall. Um, so things like that, you know that you want them in the room. Yeah. But mostly the room is the room. I don't interfere with the room. Um, it has to work or I go to another room, you mm. know. So it's really just responding to yeah. what's happening. And like yeah. I'm saying, it's more about process than I know what's going to be and I just have to spend eight hours or something doing it. Mm. Thank you. Before we open up for questions, I just wanted to ask each of you, um, this, I think, has been an extraordinary um, biennial magic object, and um, we know what you've brought us in terms of your work, but what do you think, um, in the context of Australian exhibition making, being presented within um, a biennial brings to you as artists? Me, well, dear first? Abdul, do you want to start? Oh, yeah, okay. Start. <laughs> um, oh, this is the biggest thing I've ever done. Um, I'm quite early in my career, it's only a few years in, and um, for Lisa to put that much faith in me, it kind of, you know, popped my little brain and like coming along and having this much support. Having having Nick up there talking about taking the pulse of Australian art and knowing that I'm sort of in that little group was, I was so happy. I've been a very, very happy man all week. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm extremely grateful and like, I mean, being up, that list of artists, you know, it, would have, it just blows my mind to see my name. And it's nice to that. It's always in alphabetical order. I've got a big, long, clunky name <laughs> at the beginning there. Um, yeah, it was amazing. It's Best so thing I've ever a, done. A and B is really yeah. good because I have analysed it being B and A. <laughs> <laughs> now you'll find me and my brother. My brother's always just in front. <laughs> no, it's an amazing experience. Love to do it every two years. <laughs> actually part of the festival but um, it allows you know it allows you to use the technology for me to present a work that you know it's very due to cost cost issues and venue issues you know you obviously can't show in a in a commercial sort of situation and mm. and, it, and an audience you know like my opening um, there's a there was a chaos meeting in town so 
you know, it's a captive audience. It's great. You know, all the, all the museum directors were there in one hit. It's very rare that you'll have a show anywhere in Australia and have everyone there to see the work. And I think that's the beauty of, of, of especially of Adelaide, is that really so many people in the industry come and, and people who love art. And, you know, you, you, they all come and see the works and it's, it's very accessible to it. So it, it's been fantastic. I've really, really enjoyed having that dialogue with everyone and being part of it. Robin, would you like to answer um, that? It's been fantastic, I have to say, um, just meeting everyone, meeting mm. all the other artists. Breakfast is a highlight, everyone's <laughs> at the same hotel, so we all kind of you see different people at breakfast. Um, and just um, Adelaide's incredibly generous and people are very hospitable, and it's been really friendly and warm, and Lisa and Nick have been fantastic. You know, like I think every artist feels like Lisa's focused on you, mm -hmm. but she's done it for 25 people to the mm -hmm. same extent, and they've, everyone's really gone out of their way to make it um, the best that they, you know, that, mm -hmm. to enable you to do what you want to do mm -hmm. and to produce the best that you can. So yeah. just meeting all the other artists has been fantastic. It's been mm -hmm. great. And then the people around yeah. the, the gallery really great. Glenn? I, I don't want this to come out the wrong way because I think it is becoming my curatorial style too because I still do some curatorial work. But I think Lisa is a master of hardly curating. Um, there was no meddling. Yeah. Um, she, you had a sense that you could do whatever you wanted. And when she, I had a very earnest conversation with my gallerist because I used to be a curator and I jumped ship, so I thought no one's ever, yeah, they're going to hate me, those others. Um, and then I said, look, don't worry about the others, the other curators. And I said to my gallerist, look, curators just forget about it, like they're going to hate me because I did the wrong thing and I'm a trader. Um, and about a month, and he said, okay, yep, radio. And then about a month later, he said, oh, guess what? Like, Lisa Slade wants you to miss. Like, oh, well, another good curator, excellent. <laughs> so um, when I met with her, she said, what do you want to do? And I'm this, again, like Abdul, I'm a quite a young artist. Um, and I said, oh, I want to build this big room and I want to do all these things. And Lisa said, great, you can do that, no worries. And then she was sort of hands off. Um, she came to the studio, she looked, she just sort of said, yep, it's great. There was regular sort of checking in. But I think that's a sign of good curating where you actually say to that, you, choosing the artist is the act of curating rather than maybe choosing the artwork and knowing that the artist will deliver because that's why you chose them in the first place. So um, I think she's an artist-driven curator and allowing the artist to do whatever they like. And it's a risk because it may not work out. But I think in this case, the artist have seized the ambition and the opportunity to actually make something that they wanted to make and to do something on quite a big scale. And so I sort of applaud Nick and Lisa for what they've done. It's not, yeah. there, there's a, I think it's, in the art gallery in general, because I have worked in other institutions as a curator, there's a sense here that there's a structure but within that structure, you can sort of bounce around like a ball inside of it, which I think is always a good way to work. So, yeah, I'm overjoyed. I'm, yeah, I can't believe it, actually. And my mum is going to be so happy because 
there's so much product, Rubik's cubes and um, catalogs. <laughs> Christmas is sorted for like the next three years. It's really amazing. Chris Kringle, oh, Rubik's cube again. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so we've been talking for about an hour now, so I thought I might open up for questions. Has anyone got any questions there? Yeah. Uh, more of a, an address to the whole panel. I think it's pretty important in the men's comments about the index item and not doing the thing at all. But um, I just want to think that magic and this project and first. To be fair, the project came before the title. So for me, that you know, that it was titled, that my, the idea I was going with was um, I just wanted to make it into the perfect project that I've always wanted to do, I guess. Things that have been bouncing around in my head. But yeah, that the actual title of it came along when, I, when my project had already begun and it, it fit, it covered it. There was no question about that, yeah. I suppose that, that was, like Ben was saying, in the selection of the artist, that had already been covered. Yeah, I, I think it's more that the, the artists were chosen to, because it worked with magic object. And, and then, as Glenn was saying, you, Lisa had faith in everyone to mm. deliver. And, um, rather than, oh, I've got to change what I do to fit the show. Mm. And very tied into the title is the idea of the wonder karma. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that word has sort of come up from that idea that Lisa had around um, groupings of objects. Oh yeah, of course, because you want to know, yeah. And I think from my perspective, and I think from I look, my conversations with Lisa and knowing, sort of looking at the show, I think, like Lisa said, um, I think Lisa Slade was sort of finding those artists who were already working in that area. And magic objects, just from my perspective, I, I believe in that. You know, like all of the tools and all the materials I work with in my studio have come from my mother-in-law or Sam Wilde's mother. Sam gave me a box of things that her mother had worked with and I have a belief that those tools and all that equipment has like magic stuck inside of them that can't. I've never bought it. I, well, I bought, a, I bought a tool, an expensive ceramic tool, and I used it once and I went back to a stick, you know, or something that I'd found, because it was powerful, so I already believed in those things, and I think she, she knew that in all of the artists, had belief in those things as well. 
whether that's the magic in a tool or magic in a room, I think those things existed. And it was a great group of people when you looked at it as, as my sort of part-time curatorial eye as well. I think the interesting thing about it is there's a group of people within this group who you maybe wouldn't expect to see in a big survey show like this. And I think everyone has risen and done really great work. an image of it on the next slide. Click over. That's the one there. That's when it was installed at Alaska, um, Alaska Projects last April in Sydney. Well, that's the funny thing. The sort of, I've had some sort of a little bit of backlash from people who are looking at it from this animal rights perspective. There's no meat products in this work, but he could eat this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. They sort of, but I mean, that's the that's just one of the ways a work like that can work, it'll just touch on their people's own relationships or their own thoughts about these things. To me, this was, you know, this was, all my work has a presence of family in it, and this is me and my dad, and this was a process that, you know, we went through a lot as a kid where we would, um, that was our way, that's how we got halal meat in, back in, in the 80s. I mean, we grew up in a very inner city suburb. But we processed that meat and slaughtered the animal ourselves. And to me, there's like a real warmth and celebration about that, which may not necessarily come through to everyone. But I guess that's just an example of what I was talking about, where it, it touches on something which is already in them or, and, you know, and sparks that off. You know, sometimes that's, you know, that can not necessarily be a, ne a negative or a positive thing. I don't, I don't really, you know, I, I've got no control over how other people are going to see that. But um, it does come up all the time. But... Um, I think that's just the work being effective. Yeah. It wasn't the only thing, by the way, that made it so real. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, people, yeah. Yeah, people were asking, when is it going to start to smell? And it's like, <laughs> it's, if you get real close, you get a hint of terps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's another question here. Inscription? The, is that the inscription? Oh, yeah, yeah, they're just, I mean, it's a self portrait, so they're the tattoos I have. Yeah, and so, I mean. What's the text? Across my stomach? Okay. Uh, it's just, I'm not going to take my shirt off. Yeah. You, can, you can go look at the word. Yeah, yeah. 
I suppose, I mean, all, all the, the sort of, I guess people have asked that and they, they, these are new so they're not on the work. Um, uh, across my stomach it says Jihad al-Nafs, which is a reference to the um, Jihad of the Self. Uh, there's, a, there's a large jihad, and this, that's actually considered the large jihad. The smaller jihad is like a defensive struggle. Um, the large jihad is the sort of struggle you have with your own human failings, I guess. And, and it's, a, it's a very sort of core, like, Sufi tenet, and it's something that's uh, sort of just close to my heart. And I've got a lot of real estate, so that's where it went. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the other ones are like sort of affirmations and sort of like direct links back to you know, my relationship with like, you know, a Muslim identity, I guess. Um, not an orthodox way of sort of portraying that, but it is my way and that was, it's in the work, so it's part of me, so it's part of the work. Yeah. I had to um, give a little bit of a description to the gallery guides because they were all asking, what's that, what's that, what's that? Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, the boat itself, it's a, it's a dugout canoe from Malaysia. It's an Orangasta, which is an indigenous Malay canoe design. Well, I was just, I wanted to put myself, because in all my research, you know, that's all based along, you know, it's all focused on glorious figures of the past, you know, these lines of nobility, royal families in Malaysia, going back to Sulawesi. And I wanted to sort of reduce it down to a very individual perspective of that and put myself into that story in a way. And so the Marantau just it means to seek your fortune, to leave, to you know, live overseas, to seek adventure. And it's one of the things which I guess for the, you know, my boogie, it's a boogie's background with boogie's people and they're seafaring people. Um, yeah, I wanted to put myself into this glorious story, you know, which just focused on, you know, politics and wars and, you know, battling the colonial um, footprint and all this sort of thing, but reduce it to a very human one-on-one -on -one experience with that. The rooster is just, it's, in, it's very emblematic of bravery and almost foolhardy pride. It's a very sort of um, male emblem, I guess, from that part of the world. And it, the rooster itself is an am Katawa, which is a laughing chicken, which is sort of from South Sulawesi. Um, and to me, I saw it as a, um, it's almost like I wanted to put myself in this exploratory role where I'm, but I'm exploring chartered waters. I'm going into a place which is already full of people and sort of making my way there. And that chicken is a way of, almost kind of represents a very willful um, domestication. I'm, I'm here to stay kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'd say these chickens have a very unfortunate Thing about them where I, they taste good and humans will see themselves reflected in the rooster in all sorts of ways and in the chicken and the rooster and it's almost they have the misfortune of being so attractive to human beings <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah i don't know if that makes sense but that was why the, so the roosters as a guiding light which is it's almost been guided by a sense of yeah foolhardy pride more than anything else <laughs> yeah mm. about the projection, but you also spoke about the necessity of having a canvas in 
that's based on the knowledge that we spread that we're I'm just talking about how the other rooms that you're using operate within these works and those relationships between the projection and the room. I mean, the rooms are obviously quite important in themselves, their locations, um, and things that exist within those rooms. Can you talk about that? Um, sure. Uh, well, the, the first step is I pick the thing that I want to come, you know, the, like the lighthouse or uh, the view on North Terrace, you know, the Masonic Lodge or the looking back to the Tobin building. And I wanted, I really was trying to get, really wanted to get a statue in there, which was so you get the back of, I think it's King William in the Institute building. And so things like the, the King William room in Parliament House, that's not open to the general public. No one can enter that room. So that's another way, too, of opening up rooms that people can never go into. Um, and when you're in the room, if you go, there, there is one today at the Institute, and the Carrick Hill one's open the entire biennial. What you see is this amount of, like, the traffic driving, like the cars drive over the roof and across the light, and the people walk over the roof, and everything distorts and extends. But because I make one long exposure, you don't capture the, the movement. And I have thought about doing like a series of images and then making like a time lapse. Because when you're in there over the day and you're shooting, you actually see the shadow of the building. You know, you see the passage of the sun and everything. So the, um, it's uh, about, yeah, the, the rooms, you can't, there's not a lot of choice because it has to be how it's projected. You know, like, like I can't, you can't go, oh, that's an interesting room, but if it doesn't overlook in the right way the thing you want to capture, that room's of no use. Um, uh, so, now I've forgotten what I was going to say. Well, uh, can you talk a little bit more about the image of the Samaritan building? Yeah. You know, we've got a Well, they become, that's what I love about it when I said that visual mashup of the out and the in. They become surreal or hyper-real spaces. And in a way, like other ones, not so much here in LA, but other ones that I've made, um, they have a quite narrative feel. So, in, and in a, I made for the Museum of Brisbane, they commissioned me to make 22. Half of them have people and half are just the empty room. And when you have people in them, it's like, well, what happened in this room? Like, it, it really, that whole cine, they become much more cinematic. Well, there's and, a narrative. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. they have a kind of psychological, like, you know, because of how I, because they're long exposures, the way that people can be in the room is also controlled. Um, so they can't be, um, often they're leaning on things, they have their eyes closed. And so people, that's what I like, that the, the viewer can then lead into that. You know, like, what, why are they there? What are they thinking? What happened in that room? And because a lot of the rooms have a history, that feeds into that as well, like that person in that space, what's going on. Um, and, yeah, so it does, it's, 
I guess, the hyper-reality of the, the outside and the interior of the room, and that's why I don't interfere with the room. The room stays as, you know, like when you're in the comfort in Riviera, you know what, you know, you know you're in a transient space and that someone's occupying it for a short period of time and then they'll move on and then there'll be another person in that space. Um, so that It must be very hard not to change things because you've had this practice of um, creating these sets. Do you have to hold back from doing that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every now and then I sort of, I'll go, oh, I could put that in. And, yeah. that <laughs> and then you go, no, leave it alone, just go with it. Yeah. And, um, so... But they are, the thing that really, I think, people find, like a lot of people go in the room and they go, oh, you make it upside down. It's like, no, that's how the world is. But because of evolution, because we walk upright, it's actually our brains flip it over because we couldn't cope because there's gravity if we walked around and everything was upside down. And I've told this story a few That's times. It's terrifying to think about. <laughs> <laughs> and people go, no, and it's like, yes. Um, but the, in this, when astronauts go into space, um, NASA made these glasses because you're in a weightless environment. There's no top, there's no bottom, there's no gravity, where it flips the world up, upside down the way that light actually travels according to physics. Um, and they found that after three days, even wearing the glasses, your brain just flips it back. Like, you just can't uh, cope. Yeah. So we're hardwired through evolution and everything to, you know, you wouldn't function in the world if it was the way it really, the way that light actually plays out in the world. All right. Do we have any more questions? There's this one up there and then down here, sorry. <laughs> There's a reflection, there's a very, very high-powered projector, um, which is not like your average projector. It's a very $70,000 projector. Um, that projects very, this, the image directly onto the ground, which reflects up onto a... Uh, it's like a, a bit of cellophane or glad wrap that's been stretched over a frame, and it's a very expensive bit of material as well. So um, this, this is not an easy process to go through due to the costs. It's very, you know, the costs of it. But then it reflects into space, so it's, it's, it's all about reflection into space, so it then becomes this hologram floating in space. And that's quite simple, the, the process. Um, and as explained, you know, with the camera obscura, it's, it's sort of the same sort of principles. Yet it comes from a projector rather than outside. Mm -hmm. Is this a question down the front? Is that what Tupac came in yeah, when they yeah, made yeah, Tupac yeah. perform? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Congratulations to all of you. Um, Robin, we had the pleasure of going to Carrick Hill and seeing your work. Um, such an amazing historic building with so many incredible old paintings, including still life paintings. And then 
itself is almost like a sort of pattern. How did you, um, I mean, and the work that you produced, I guess, is a large scale still life in action. And as we sat there over a period of time, the trees did move and light did reflect it in different points of the trees. How did you feel about that? It's almost like you're putting everything together. Sorry, I didn't hear the last. How did you feel about it? How did you feel about this? 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 How did you feel about I mean, if you're from Adelaide, everyone knows Barry Hill, but Ursula Bar Smith, um, it, it's, the bar, it's her and her husband's house. And um, so I really wanted to do something in Ursula's bedroom. And when I went into the bedroom, it the, was like trees outside, which looked okay, but I knew it wasn't going to work properly. And so we walked around the house and we walked outside and I went, well, I'd really like to do the teardrop garden. And the man who was showing us around went, oh, well, there's no, you know, there's no, you couldn't do it because there's no room. And I went, oh, but there's a window there. There must be a room. And he went, oh, it's blocked off. Can't use it. And I went, well, <laughs> could we go and look? And he's like, oh, all right. <laughs> and so it's like this. So we went up and we looked, and it is a small gallery. And... Um, had a piece of wood over it, you know, to, so it's like flush. And he went, there, see, you can't use it. And I went, oh, but there's only, and then the maintenance man came in and he went, I went, there's only two screws. And he went, oh, yeah, take me five minutes to take it down. <laughs> and um, so, and then he went, oh, I guess you could use it. So it, it And now went, does he love it? Yeah. Oh, good. Um, but it, sometimes it's, uh, but so then it was really great that it worked so well and, you know, like, uh, it was kind of worth having the little argument that we had to have to get into the room. Um, but it, it is, apparently Ursula went out every morning and collected flowers and then made arrangements. And she used to also pick flowers and pack them in ice and send them down to Adrian Faint, the painter in Tasmania, for him to paint. Then they collected Adrian Faint paintings. So the whole, that's what I mean, like you see the image, but mm. there's sort of layers of history, the people in the house, how they used the house, her relationship to the garden, what the garden meant, and, um, so it, it's kind of all comes together, like in that in that little room, and it is used as a small gallery. And we did actually put some Adrian Faint painting, like leaning against the wall, as if they were about to hang. And and then we decided it was actually better just, you know, that was a that was me meddling. Mm. So I took it out, and we went back just to the the room as it was, which had wires on the floor ready for the. We've got time for a couple more questions. Do we have any more? Okay, I think we will say thank you to these four extraordinary artists. Thank you. Thank you.